0: One of the largest questions, the biggest existential questions facing humanity and all of science is the question of whether we are alone in the universe or not. We suspect strongly that with all the planets out there in the universe and all the ubiquity of the raw ingredients, the atoms, molecules, and organic compounds that are essential to life out there, there ought to be more life than what we find here on planet Earth out there, but we haven't found it yet. This quest for extraterrestrial life, this quest for life beyond Earth, is one of the proverbial holy grails of modern science. Are we alone in the universe? Well, this might be an unanswered question today, but it's something that scientists are right at the cutting edge of working hard to find out. Where are we and what are our prospects for getting there? Find out on this edition of the Starts With a Bang podcast. I'm so pleased to welcome to the show today, Dr. Adrian Lenardic, professor at Rice University in Texas. Adrian is an expert on exoplanets, on potentially habitable exoplanets, and on looking not just for a potential planet that looks just like Earth, but on why we might be best off looking for life on planets that aren't exactly like Earth. Here we are looking to go beyond Earth 2.0, and I'm so pleased, Adrian, to welcome you to the show today. It's a pleasure to be here, Ethan. So when we talk about this, let's dive right in. When we talk about life beyond Earth, if you had asked me 25, 30 years ago, hey, what are our prospects for finding life beyond Earth? I wouldn't have even had a potential planet to go out and point to to say that's where we should be looking. The story has changed so dramatically just over the last generation, and what? are we looking at today that we couldn't have even fathomed we'd be looking at a generation ago?
1: Well, um, it's interesting you say that. I I tell it to my students all the time. When I was a student sitting where they were, the issue of is there life beyond Earth was very much a philosophical question. We could wonder about it, but the tools of science, observations that could actually let us potentially say something conclusive about it, for me, um, they didn't exist. And it didn't exist until within the last 20 years when we first started detecting planets around other stars. Now, we had thought from the time of Newton onward um, that this was something that, that could occur, given our understanding of the universe and solar system formation, but we never had direct evidence of it. And once we got that, that, that was really a game-changer. And subsequently to those first detection, missions were developed, Kepler in particular, that was designed to look for evidence of planets around other stars, and we have found a host of them. So many, in fact, that it's, it's even as a scientist to me, it's mind-boggling. Um, so that's that's been the big game-changer. Also within our own solar system, as we started expanding and looking beyond our own planet, going to Mars and Venus, and in particular, the moons of Jupiter, we were so surprised that some of the things we think are critical for life as we know it, and let's let's go with this in terms of water, can exist potentially in regions of our own solar system that when I was a student would have sounded crazy, that there are moons around Jupiter that might have subsurface, sub-ice oceans. That they might have, as you mentioned, the ingredients necessary for life. That is the ingredients necessary for, um, chemistry that allows for biological activity. And those two things together, um, for me have just been, been mind boggling within my own career, within my own lifetime.
0: And that's, and that's really wonderful. I love how you talk about this transformation from this question of is there life beyond earth, which started out very much as a a question for, you know, I say philosophers and poets and theologians. And now. It's, it's left their domain because it's fallen into the realm of science. As you said, since the 1990s, when we first started finding planets around stars other than our own until the present day, we've gone from, okay, we found the first one to, okay, now there's a handful. Okay, now there's a dozen. Well, now we have thousands. We have thousands of planets around stars other than our own. And our studies are so comprehensive that we're actually starting to categorize them and to sort of take a census of them and discover like, oh, like there's there's a gap in planet sizes between about one and a half to about two times the size of Earth. And and we're still studying why this Fulton gap exists. But but this is something where we're actually you know, so many leaps and bounds ahead of where we were when we were just in the dark, not knowing if there were planets at all, not knowing if if we were an anomaly, just guessing. Um, We've come a really long way there. I also love how we've come a really long way, as you said, in characterizing the planets and moons and worlds found within our solar system, that Saturn's Enceladus and Jupiter's Europa and even Pluto and Neptune's moon's Triton They might have subsurface oceans, too, where, look, if the ingredients for life are there and we fully expect them to be because, you know, we have things like asteroids that have fallen to Earth where we've dissected them and what do we find inside of them? Not just the 20 amino acids essential to life processes present in biological systems here but also something like 60 some odd additional unique amino acids that are not found in life processes. So if you take these two things combined, like you say, the ubiquity of the atoms, molecules, compounds, etc. that we know are involved in life processes and the ubiquity of water, Earth-like planets, maybe even planets that aren't quite Earth-like, um, it seems like the number of possibilities out there is tremendous. I think the latest estimate I read is based on the total number of planets we found and the types of planets we found, we can conclude that there's somewhere on the order of 10 billion or more potentially habitable rocky planets in the Milky Way alone.
1: Yeah, isn't, isn't that amazing? I mean, for me, it's been a shift from science fiction thinking, which, you know, I loved as a student, to my own professional work, which is science, that the two have come together. And it's interesting you mentioned the philosophy and the theology. I think an added beautiful thing that's come from this is now that science has entered into it. As scientists, we are having discussions with, with the philosophers, with the theologians, because this is... You know, I I don't think I'm exaggerating. It's a pretty big question for humanity at large. And bringing science in, which has served humanity very well, has been, you know, one of the more exciting things I can think of in my career. You mentioned that, you know, we're finding these ingredients for life in places we thought they wouldn't exist. And we could have a long philosophical and biological discussion of what life is, But I think from the astrobiology side, I like to break it down, you know, to the simplest things we can think about. And we need the right ingredients and we need an energy source. All life takes in some form of energy and transforms it into useful work and useful metabolism. And certainly the first thinking was, well, we're thinking about the stars and we found those stars. But some of the moons you mentioned and even Pluto that you mentioned, we've come to appreciate that the other energy source can come from the interior of the planet itself. or or from a moon itself. So finding those energy sources, finding all those ingredients, I I very much agree with you. That's really kind of set us up to reevaluate our thinking about these issues. And I haven't been in this too long, but I tell students this as well. For the 20-odd years I've actually been involved in space exploration, starting with explorations of Venus and onward, if there's one thing I've learned as we go to explore and it's pretty simple. Um, it's be prepared for surprise, because every single object we've looked at has surprised us at some level. And Pluto, the most recent one, where we thought, geez, this would be a dead world at the outer edges of our solar system. And lo and behold, we go and we explore, and it's not
0: no, Pluto. Pluto's anything but dead. You know, I think any world that's having active chemical processes occur on it, that's having active precipitation occur on it, that the atmosphere and the surface exhibits rapid and ongoing changes. Um, You, you can't really call that a dead and barren world when you see the evidence of active changes happening right before your eyes.
1: I fully agree, and it was just such a, such a big surprise to some of us, and, and that's, that's the value of the exploration. And at this stage, I think we need to really, you know, open our minds and be prepared for even future surprises as we start to explore not only within our own solar system, but actually start to categorize um, planets outside of our solar system, exoplanets, as you mentioned. And that's been happening within the last 10 years, where we can actually say something about where these planets sit relative to their star, something about their sizes, something about their bulk density, which gives us information about composition. And we're starting to actually categorize them and have a statistical database, as you note. And the next frontier, um, which is coming, and this is with a lot of missions planned from the U.S. to Europe, Europe. I I always say it's an international endeavor, will be to look for what are being called biosignatures by characterizing the atmosphere of some of these exoplanets to see if they contain signatures of a chemistry that might be indicative of life altering the atmosphere on these planets. And that frontier is just starting.
0: No, and that's, for my bet, you know, there are are three ways that I would generally classify the way we look for life beyond Earth. And one of them is, well, we have some other worlds that we can go and visit. Let's go and visit them and see if there's life there. If we we went to Mars and started digging in the Martian rocks and we started to find, you know, organisms or fossilized organisms, that sure would be evidence for life. Same deal with any of the moons or uh, other planets we've mentioned in the solar system, if they have actual biological activity occurring on them, that would be fantastic. Even if all they had was fossils, that would also be fantastic. I've always wondered how much life is actually ubiquitous in the solar system because it started on Earth and asteroids over the four and a half billion years our planet has been around have struck Earth and kicked debris up. We discovered only, like you said, within the last 20 years that many Many of the meteorites which have fallen here on Earth are actually from another planet. I think about 3% of all the meteorites that strike Earth have a Martian origin. It would be crazy to believe that Little debris of Earth, little chunks of Earth aren't floating through space, through the solar system, maybe even throughout the galaxy as the potential to seed alien worlds with life. So that's one possibility. And another possibility is, you know what? What if there are intelligent spacefaring or communicative aliens out there within our galaxy? What if they send us a message directly? Or what if they even cross the interstellar distances and travel to our world? We haven't found definitive evidence that that's actually real and actually what's happening, but that's the second possibility. But the third one, the in-between possibility of what if we went outside of the solar system, but didn't restrict ourselves to the signals of an intelligent, technologically advanced, potentially spacefaring civilization? I think that other method, the one you talked about, about probing exoatmospheres for biosignatures, that's got to be the most exciting new science to be emerging right now. I mean, you can look at, wow, we've got a photograph of a black hole that's super recent. Isn't that amazing? Wow, we've got gravitational waves coming in from these objects. Isn't that amazing? Well, guess what? There's another frontier that we're pushing, and that is the frontier of asking this question of how common and where is life in the Universe beyond Earth. I think we are in a better position to start looking for answers to that question than we've ever been before.
1: Oh, I, I fully agree, and it is a new frontier, and it's been exciting for me—not um, just as a scientist, but as an educator—to actually watch that frontier unfold. Um, I, t- I tell my colleagues it's crazy. I can actually ask students in introductory planetary science quest- classes, sorry. Um, quiz questions about exoplanets. Um, to me, that wouldn't have occurred as a possibility when I was a student. And the fact we can now actually say something, or we're at the forefront of trying to be able to scientifically say something about what is the potential for life in our galaxy? Is it rare, or is it plentiful, or is it something in between? And that we're actually bringing observations to bear on that question is to me again it's amazing it's one of the first questions i think that we as people when we first looked up at the sky probably pondered right i mean once we saw that there were other light things in the sky that there was something as opposed to nothing i can't believe that one of the next questions wouldn't be are there things like us or living things out there and are they plentiful are they rare Where are they? Do they look like us? Are they different than us? All these questions stem from, I think, some of the first curiosity that got science going.
0: And how can you not ask, right? How can you not ask? How could you not be curious about that? You know, you look around at all of our planet and everything on it. And even here on Earth, um, I'm sure It must have seemed crazy to people every time there was an advance that allowed them to look somewhere they hadn't looked before. When you went into a deep, dark cave for the first time and you pull out what's in there and you find, hey, guess what? I sure don't see an energy source in here, but there are living things in here. And the first time you put a couple of spyglasses together and focus them to see the microscopic world and, well, this water sure looks pretty empty, but look at this microscopic life it's teeming with. And when you go down to the bottom of the ocean to hydrothermal vents, and there's life there, and you go look in these hydrothermal fields where you have these freshwater things heated by volcanic activity, and they're almost boiling, but there's life in there. I think the more we've looked, the more, like you said earlier, we've been surprised that, hey, there's life here, and there's life there, and there's life there, and Now, when you start thinking about the universe beyond, when you realize that these other lights in the sky are stars like our own sun, and you realize like, hey, we didn't know, but now we know that almost all of them have planets around them, and some of these planets are rocky, and some of these planets have thin atmospheres around them and are approximately earth-sized, and some of these stars have the same ratio of heavy elements that the sun has you're going to say, wow, well, what if they're at the right distance from the star to have liquid water on their surface? What if they're not? And there's some sort of heating either from a planet or a companion that could give them an energy source to have life start in the ocean. You know, I think the possibilities, once you start thinking about it, once you start realizing what's out there, you start to say, wow, not only might there be Earth-like worlds out there that have similar conditions to ours and the same result that ours had, but maybe there are even worlds that are very different from our own, that might have had life arise through possibly a very different mechanism or under a very different set of conditions than how they arose on Earth.
1: Well, I'm really glad you mentioned um, our discoveries about life on this planet in settings where for a long time we thought life wouldn't exist, and this goes under um, the name of extremophile studies, and extreme is only relative to what we used to think was possible, but now we see them, as you noted, all over this planet. It's within our lifetimes, I'm, I'm reasonably sure, that we found life outside of the photosynthetic zone so the energy source need not be the star, that it actually could be from deep vents, that we found life in caves, um, where unfortunately as humans we actually messed things up a little bit and screwed up the pH and made it very acidic, but yet there was life thriving. We found life that can go dormant for long periods of time under extreme cold and then actually come back and reproduce and do all the things that we think life does. And you're, you're correct that that, Level of biology and exo, extreme biology on this planet has definitely fed into our thinking about the potential for life on other planets and other moons. That it might not be the life we're, you know, that most of us are comfortable with and think we know animals and plants. It could be something that for a time seemed exotic, but now actually it's not so exotic because we found these unusual creatures living on this planet. And that has definitely changed our ability to imagine what life might be like on other planets, and contrary to sometimes stereotypes, scientists can be imaginative. Um, We have to do so within the confines of the laws of physics and chemistry as we understand them, but those discoveries have opened up our imagination quite a bit, and they're definitely feeding into how we're discussing plans for missions to look for life on other planets, and... I think, actually, it's caused us to move out of an overly Earth-centric thought and to actually entertain the possibilities that we really should look broader. And that's coming from evidence on on this planet itself.
0: You know, and and I love that possibility because we... You know, one of the first things I was taught when I was a student is, oh, the sun, the sun is a typical star, and then you learn a little more deeply, and you're like, actually, the sun is larger and more massive than about 95% of stars in the universe, that about four out of every five stars are actually 40% the mass of the sun or less, that the overwhelming majority of stars in the universe are aren't like us, but are smaller and cooler and redder and a little bit more active and volatile than our own star is. These are the red dwarfs of the universe. You also learn that, yeah, there's there are stars like the sun, but many of them uh, have a wider variety of planets around them than what we see here. We've learned that there is a class of planet that we don't seem to have in our solar system that we have called a super-Earth. Where they are between about two and ten times the mass of planet Earth. Um, before you get into the you know gas giant Neptune-sized worlds, and before you get down to the rocky Earth-sized world, um, if you are a little bit bigger, a little bit more massive, we don't really know where that line is or whether it's even a hard boundary between a rocky world with a thin atmosphere and a giant world that holds on to hydrogen and helium in these gas giant envelopes. Um, We know that many of the stars have uh, temperatures that we think, oh, you'd have to be You'd have to be a lot closer to your parent star to get, you know, what we consider a temperate environment, but many of them are. Around many of these lower-mass red dwarf stars, we find planets with orbital periods of just a few days rather than hundreds of days, and that could give them the right temperature to potentially have liquid water on the surface. Now, I know there are a lot of people who look at these worlds that are different from our own, who look at the super-Earth worlds and say, oh, well, as soon as you get massive enough that you can hold on to hydrogen and helium in your atmosphere, you've got no chance at life. And I know that there are people who look at the worlds around red dwarfs and say, bah, (laughs) with all of that, with all of those flare, you have to say, bah, bah, with all of those flaring activities you see and with the fact that you're going to be tidally locked to your star, uh, there's no way you can maintain an atmosphere and there's no way you can be conducive to life i think people who take that approach now based on what we know and with all the ignorance we have of what's actually going on in these worlds might be cutting themselves off from very real possibilities of life arising where they don't expect it i know you have some very detailed thoughts on that
1: yeah, I do. And the worry is, or well, I'll just say it's my worry, and the worry from some other people is the one you expressed, that we don't want to cut ourselves off to what might be out there, lest we miss it. And, and there is a tendency, and I, I think it's a very human tendency, to see ourselves as somehow special. I mean, the word anthropomorphic is kind of the cocktail party buzzword, if you want a jargon word, but it, it, it just means... Our thinking about the universe is going to be centered a little bit about how we understand ourselves. And that's fair enough. But the the reality is, and I agree with you, um, we don't know. We're not completely in the dark. But the very fact we're talking about exploration, the word itself, exploration, means we have some uncertainty. or We have high degrees of uncertainty. That's why we're exploring after all. And one can actually, I think, take a great risk if you assume you know the answer beforehand. If you assume that these worlds, the ones you've talked about that might be tidally locked, can't have life exactly like it is on the earth. And therefore, we shouldn't look at those for signals of life. I think we're setting ourselves up to potentially miss things. And I think we're actually taking then a big risk in our exploration. Because, yes, they might not have the kind of life we think about and that we know. But as we've discussed, we've actually come to appreciate that biology um, has solved problems over a much broader range than we used to think. And that it actually could allow for biospheres to form on these planets. Recently, people have started to look at these tidally locked planets and say, "Okay, some of the things you think are bad, fair enough for life. But keep this in mind, one of the benefits that comes with it is that that tidal locking leads to an internal heating and internal heat generation that could actually fuel the energy that feeds um, the types of critters we actually see on this planet around deep hydrothermal vents. And that bonus energy source, again, energy and the ingredients, I kind of go back to the simplest ones, could actually be beneficial. So my own thinking and it is the thinking of others as well and there is debate on this exploration comes with debate and scientists like to argue i think that's something that also we should you know get out there and it's a good thing right differences of opinion Um, but we shouldn't necessarily assume um, something we don't know and here's the thing i think we don't know we know that the earth has life we know something about the properties of this planet What we don't know is that that is the norm for life. We don't know that at all. And I think that's one of the questions we should be seeking to answer. And it's dangerous to assume we know that answer and then design missions around that. I think we should actually be somewhat more imaginative within the limits of what we understand about biology and chemistry.
0: So if you were going to design sort of a general all-purpose observatory or a mechanism or a method of looking for these exosignatures of life that might not depend on, oh, are you just like Earth? Do you... Are you orbiting a sun-like star? Do you have the right ratio of heavy elements to light elements to be like Earth? Are you the same size, the same radius, the same density, the same mass as Earth? Do you have a a large moon around you like Earth does? Do you have a planet like Jupiter um that, you know, exists slightly outside of the frost line? Um we don't know that any of these things are necessary or sufficient to grant life. But if you want to find life, it makes sense that you would look for what what you would hope is something like an unambiguous or I guess I can't really say unambiguous, but you would want to look for something that has what you would consider a low ambiguity signature of life or biological activity out there. I would think, you know. Long before we had macroscopic plants or animals or fungi, long before we had multicellularity, we had an atmosphere that was being transformed by the presence of biological organisms. And atmospheres, to me, are interesting because that's something we're sort of approaching the frontier of being able to measure What is the composition of these Earth-like atmospheres or of the atmospheres of Earth-sized planets around stars? The the two ways I can think of to do it is, one, is you can get direct imaging, that if you had a high-enough-resolution observatory with either a coronagraph or a starshade, you might be able to image that planet directly and do spectroscopy to say what is in its atmosphere. The other way to do it might be a little more clever to say, well, we get these transit where the planets, some of these planets we found, they pass directly in front of their parent star. And sure, that's how we detect them is the planet itself blocks some of that starlight in a periodic fashion. But that should also mean when the planet passes in front of that star, some of that starlight is going to filter through the planet's atmosphere. And maybe we could tease out some of these biomolecular signatures that might be conducive to life. So, if you were going to do that, take one of those two approaches, or maybe a third approach that I'm not aware of, what would be the criteria you would look for? What would be the ideal design for, well, here's how we'd go out and look for it?
1: So those uh, methods are on the forefront, and they're actually going to be um, put into practice, you know, knock on wood, within our lifetimes um, through missions like James Webb, Lou various ones. Right now, a lot of what's being discussed is the target selection, and I think that's what we're discussing, discussing here. I will add something about the, um, the atmosphere and the signal. This, this is an idea that goes back to James Lovelock of Gaia fame when he was hired by NASA when NASA was about to go to Mars to look for signs of life. And what Lovelock realized by looking at the composition of the atmosphere of Mars, which we actually had from previous probes, and the composition of the atmosphere on the Earth and on Venus, that the Earth is the wild card, it's the anomaly. And he reasoned that the reason for that was that the biosphere on Earth was interacting with the atmosphere, keeping it in a chemical disequilibrium that one could actually detect um, remotely. And interestingly enough, he told NASA at the time something they didn't want to hear, that there would be no um, present-day life on Mars, there might be ancient life, actually through that atmospheric signature. And he was correct. And that's what we're still following up on. And that's going to be sort of the next sweep of actually trying to characterize these planetary atmospheres. My own thinking from the target selection, one can take it um, two ways, and they're extreme ways we can say, okay, let's go with what we know the best, given our small sample size, um, that the Earth has life. And the Earth is around a particular star, our sun. So let's put our eggs in that one basket and focus on planet star systems that have as many similarities as we can think of to the Earth star system. You mentioned many of them, the moon, Jupiter, Jupiter for protection from comets, and we can do it that way. I, I think that's that's assuming you know the answer. My own thinking is we should actually be a little bit more cautious, and I would say actually a little bit more conservative, and design missions that allow for a range around that. I'm not saying we shouldn't look at it. Certainly we should. Um, but we should also consider that under different star types, planets can be closer than the Earth is um, to our star and still allow for the potential of water. Or that they can be further away if the orbital characteristics are such that they can actually generate significant internal energy. And that we should actually target initial swaths that span um, those optimistic regions where life might exist. And the simplest one to start with is simply temperature constraints. That no one will disagree that at some level if you're too close to a particular type of star the conditions will be too hot and that it might not even allow for chemistry to work, or if you're too far. But um, within that limit, and those are things we can actually determine, because we actually know quite a bit about the luminosity of these different stars. We're actually starting to detect orbital characteristics of the planets. Within that region, I think we should be willing to look at any and all the planets there. Now, there is a practical issue there that this does come with cost, and that's, that's something we have to deal with in mission design. But it's, it's not out of bounds to think that we couldn't explore hundreds of planets within that region to see which ones are giving us the best signals. And it won't be a definitive signal, you're right, in this case with the first mission. It will be, some of my colleagues have said that it's better to call these bio hints than biosignatures because we won't be convinced on the first pass. But that first pass will give us a little bit more in the way of statistics in the same way Kepler, when it looked... It actually did a wide sweep um, near the star and far from the star to get a determination of what the solar systems might look like. And you're right, lo and behold, our solar system is not the norm. There are many ones that are very different. So that's that's my own thinking, and that, that's the way we should actually do it.
0: I mean, I think that's absolutely brilliant, because if we don't look other than where we expect, we're going to confirm our expectations, right? You you have to recognize, I think everyone has to recognize, that no matter what line of work you're in or what you do in life, you are biased by your own experience. If we take a look at Earth and say, oh, here are all the factors that came into play to create Earth as we know it. Well, of course, we're going to go out and say, hey, it worked here. Maybe it worked someplace like here Elsewhere. So, sure, look for a large moon. Although, do we really need a large moon? Does that actually help? Does the evidence of having a giant impactor in our past actually help life form? Or do the tides really help? And if so, are the tides that the moon produces that important? Or would smaller tides, like that produced by the sun, or larger tides, like being closer to a lower mass object, Would that be more conducive? You mentioned Jupiter as quote-unquote protection from asteroids, but is that something that actually helps life thrive and evolve? Or would the lack of such a world lead to more asteroid collisions, and would that lead to more extinction events, which led to faster evolution on the world? I I think these are just a couple of really unanswered questions because we have a sample size of one. We have a sample size of one where it worked. And I think if all you do is look at places like the place where we know it worked, we're we're obviously going to be shortchanging ourselves as far as trying to understand the diversity, the population statistics, and the likelihood of life arising elsewhere. If it turns out that life is common around M-class stars, around these red dwarfs with tidally locked planets, you know, the so-called eyeball planets that are hot on the sun-facing side, frozen on the away-from-sun-facing side, and maybe have a ring-like area where it's conducive to life? I mean, what if that's the most common thing? If we chose not to look at, for example, the planets around the Trappist-1 system because we've already decided, ah, they probably don't have life, what might we be missing?
1: Uh, Those are great points. And, you know, bringing it back to what opened this discussion, I think we and we both certainly and hopefully all the listeners are agree that one of the biggest questions we can answer is their life on any other object, 100%. But all the other questions you bring up, I would argue, are just as interesting and are also driving our exploration. And we don't know that. Um, We can assume that, okay, the Earth is the optimal planet for life, based on that small statistics of one. But the reality is we don't know that. That's a question I would actually also like to know the answer. Is it the most conducive? Maybe within the distribution of the things that allow for life on the galaxy, the Earth might sit in a tail. It might be not the norm. It might be more of an anomaly. Life finds many ways to solve its problems, and this might not be the only planet. We simply don't know what that distribution is. One of the things I think we should be doing is actually trying to constrain it, to actually look at the range of potential planets, and then we can actually not only say, okay, will we find life elsewhere? I think it would then actually help us put ourselves into a better galactic um, context. I mean, for lack of a better way of saying it, right? Yes, we have life, but is it the norm? Is it different? How different can different be? Are we at the tail of a distribution? Are we in the center of it? And we need to answer those questions if we want to go beyond what I would call the one-and-done aspect. And what I mean by one-and-done is if you think the only reason we're exploring is to find signs of life on another planet, then once we find it, we should stop. I don't think any of my colleagues actually think that, and I hope most humans don't think that, because I think there are very other interesting questions beyond that. If we find one other planet with life, well... One plus one in the context of how many stars there are, that's still small numbers. One of the other big questions that we want to answer from the time of modern science is what is the probability of life in the entire galaxy? And to answer that question, we actually need to know if life can exist on conditions that are not exactly like the Earth, they're not exactly like the Earth and our sun, and how different those conditions can be. And I think we're at the point where observations can actually start to answer those questions progressively as we build up a bigger sample. And to me, that's just as exciting as the thought of finding one other planet with life on it.
0: So it sounds like what you're advocating is this sort of uh, larger, more extrapolatory view of saying, you know, here on Earth, we, you know, life on the surface, obvious life in the ocean, obvious microscopic life was less obvious life in these extreme conditions that we had previously thought were poisonous to life, too acidic, too basic, too hot at too much depth with too much pressure without sunlight. Um, life exists under all of these conditions, and life exists ubiquitously here on Earth in all of these conditions. And so perhaps if we're saying, you know, there are extremophiles, as you called them, on Earth, maybe planets can be extremophiles as far as where is life likely to arise. And maybe until we actually do that work, we have no way of knowing whether the Earth itself is an extremophile or whether we're the norm as far as life arising on it. And the only way to know is to look. Do you think there are places in the galaxy, in other galaxies, that might give very different chances for life than we see here? For example, if I'm way out in the outskirts of the galactic halo, it's very likely that I have fewer heavy elements. Elements than I do here on here on Earth. Does that mean life is impossible out there? Conversely, if I go close to the galactic center and stellar evolution happens more quickly and more generations of stars live and die down there, does that mean I could have gotten a a potentially habitable world that's more like Earth billions of years before the Earth arose? And how advanced would life have gotten on a world like that, particularly if it happened around a star? with a lifetime that's much more stable and much longer than our sun.
1: I think those certainly are real potentials, and they are potentials. Um, in terms of the galactic conditions, I, I haven't thought as much about that as some, so I would actually reference readers and and yourself, sorry, readers, listeners, um, to work on galactic habitable zone. And uh, Charlie Lineweaver's done a lot of this in Australia And some of the arguments you presented are in line with what he was saying that there might be different regions within the galaxy that might be more or less conducive to having the right ingredients. And I I think that is a possibility. Um, It remains a possibility, it remains a hypothesis. And science, I, I think, was founded on the idea of multiple working hypotheses that if we don't know, we entertain multiple possibilities. And then we ask ourselves, what observational data would we like to get to actually favor or maybe refute or rule out one hypothesis over the other, while at the same time realizing as we're developing this data, we're not going to get the one planet that screams to us right away, oh, this is the right idea. It's going to have to develop over time. And entertaining that range of hypotheses um, is... And you've encapsulated it well, um, essentially something that many of us are saying we should be thinking about as we design future missions to look for signs of life on these other planets within our own galaxy. And that's, uh, I, I think, within my lifetime, it's going to stay within this galaxy. Um, but that's, that's really the idea. And it follows, I think, in much the same way with what Kepler did where it was willing to look at a range of different solar systems to build up a little bit more inference on the differences that could exist within solar system structure. And we started to categorize it, and you've encapsulated some of that well. The next step would be to try to do the same thing for potentially living worlds. And to me, that is very much more than a one-and-done shot, that we actually start to look over a wider range, there is discussion that um, stars, unlike our own, actually might be more conducive not only um, to life potential, but to us observing it. In particular, if a planet could be closer to a star and allow for temperature conditions that allow chemistry to thrive and water to exist, that's kind of a bonus, because those are easier to observe, and you noted that their orbital times are much shorter. We could actually get inference of uh, multiple crossings of that star uh, uh, sorry of that planet across its star and behind it to pull out the atmosphere so there's kind of a double bonus there that they might actually be conducive to life but they're also more amicable over given you know finite time windows to observing
0: and i i think that's a really important point you brought up because it applies to kepler and honestly in astronomy it applies to pretty much everything we do, is we're going to be biased, particularly in the early stages of a science or a scientific field or pushing the frontiers of a field. We're going to be biased in the types of detections we can make. The earliest exoplanets some people may remember were these hot Jupiters. Why? Because the way we detected the earliest planets was by looking at how these stars moved back and forth through the presence of an unseen orbiting companion. So what are the companions that are going to make a star move the fastest? They're going to be the most massive ones that are closest to their star. So those were the planets we found first, the most massive ones close to their stars. It turns out that hot Jupiters, as we call them, are actually pretty rare, but they were the first ones to find because of the way our detections were biased. Now, we have a slew of biases in our detections today as as you alluded to with Kepler, we were biased towards small stars, low mass stars with planets that are relatively large compared to the size of their star that orbit more quickly, that allow for multiple crossings. Yes, you need a serendipitous alignment, but also you're more likely to find a more massive, larger planet close in to a lower mass star. There's a reason that we have so few Earth-like candidates around sun-like stars, and that's because the signal that the Earth would make around a star is around a star like our sun is very small it's a little bit actually past the limits of what kepler could actually detect so sure we we can do more missions we can do as you say better target finding but it's really important i feel to not pass up the potential targets we've already found that just might be different from how we ourselves arose
1: oh and i agree and i think different is not a bad word by any means and i think it's something we should look for and if we don't uh, again i think we we take a risk with the exploration and a student i did um you know relatively simple and it actually comes more from economics than it does from physics i was kind of interested when i discovered it a cost risk benefit analysis by thinking about okay if we take this search strategy and there's many of them And we apply it, and it turns out that the distribution of life in the galaxy is X, Y, or Z. You can go through all the permutations and then actually calculate, um, you know, how many observations you need to confirm one idea or the other. And we don't know what that is. We don't know what the final answer is. But we can go through the range of what-ifs. And as we go through those what-ifs, you actually come to kind of a sweet spot where you have a search that is wide enough that it's not just Earth-centered and that it actually then minimizes some level of the risk you might take with the mission. And all exploration comes with risk. And let me be more specific about what I mean by risk um, in terms of thinking about this. The first thought might be the risk is, oh, we spend all this money, look for a long time, and we don't find signs of life anywhere other than the Earth. I would actually say that's not the biggest risk if the preponderance of unbiased, and I'm glad you brought that word up, if the preponderance of unbiased evidence directs us to that conclusion. And to me, that's science. Sometimes science answers aren't the ones you might want beforehand. They're not the ones that make you feel good necessarily, but you want that unbiased answer. To me, the biggest risk would be if we reach the wrong conclusion based on limiting the way we search.
0: I think, I think that's very important because, you know, I'm, I, one of the ways that I, I was always a little bit different from my, from my peers in terms of science is I was not a big fan of the X-Files, right? The whole tagline of the X-Files is, I want to believe, and I, I don't want to believe, I want to know. That's that's kind of how I work is I want to know and the way you know is by going out and looking and making the critical observations and measurements and drawing as accurate a scientific conclusion as you can legitimately draw based on the evidence you collected but to do that you as you said you you have to make sure that you're not biasing yourselves and that could be detection bias or selection bias or there are all sorts of biases if you're only looking at a subset of the possible targets that that's... that's a bias. If you're only looking around certain types of stars or the closest stars to you or the brightest stars or the largest planets or the biggest signals, that's a bias. So you you want to account for that as much as possible. Let's say we do that. Let's say we... We take as unbiased a sample as possible. We look at a wide variety of worlds with a wide variety of temperatures, masses, radii around a variety of stars at a variety of distances from stars with a variety of metallicities. We do all of that. We we take these observations that we wanted. What are the signatures that we can look for that will tell us that this is a world that has uh, let's use your word and say compelling bio hints
1: on it. Yeah, yeah. So uh, again, that's going to come from, from the atmosphere. And there are many people doing uh, a lot of work on atmospheric chemistry over the lifetime of this planet, over the lifetime of Venus, to ask what we might expect the atmosphere of planet to look like sans, um, the French word for without. Um, it's just a word Lovelock used, so it got stuck in my head. Um, without life. And then compare it to what we think would happen if there was um, a biosphere interacting with the atmosphere. And when we do that, we actually want to be careful not to just think about this biosphere. The gut reaction I think most people have is, oh, you know, Adrian, you and your friends are going to look for oxygen. Well, you know, that's true. Life on this planet at present um, is actually reliant on oxygen. But as we look at the Earth's history, the Earth in the past, um, there was life on this planet 3, 3.8 billion years ago when we have good evidence that the atmosphere of this planet did not have a lot of oxygen. And in fact, when oxygen um, came to dominate um, this planet, our own planet's atmosphere, a lot of those early critters, methanogens, who actually preferred methane, um, found it as a poisonous event. It was toxic to them. They had to actually go into regions away from the atmosphere. So our thinking about those atmospheric signatures, again, even from our own planet, we know it can't be overly focused on life at present here. There's a saying amongst a lot of my colleagues that the ancient Earth, so the Earth 2 billion years ago, 3 billion years ago, for all intents and purposes, was an alien planet. And we do have some evidence of how alien it was, and it was actually very different. So those biosignatures we're looking for, I want to be clear, they're not just tied to how the biosphere at present, plants, animals, are actually interacting with the atmosphere, but also thinking about different forms of life that actually might have gotten their energy in different ways, different forms of photosynthesis, or even chemosynthesis, where they actually don't need the light from the sun, but they take the energy from the planet, how those forms of life would then also alter the atmosphere. So all those are actually what's really on the table in terms of thinking about biosignatures, as well as perhaps the more obvious one, actually seeing if we have signatures of life-giving ingredients, um, the ones we call organics for organic chemistry.
0: So would it be fair to say that one of the big things we're looking for is, in fact, oxygen, and that oxygen might be a sufficient signature to say there's life over here, but it might not be a necessary signature. We might be better off saying, you know what, if we see certain combinations of water and the right pressure in an atmosphere, and uh, methane, and carbon dioxide, and a whole slew of other molecules, particularly if we see night, day, or seasonal changes in the composition of the atmosphere, could that be perhaps a hint that's just as compelling as it would be to find oxygen rich in an otherwise inert atmosphere?
1: I think that is fair to say, and I think the going thought is that it really is the combination of particular elements in the atmosphere, not any one specific one. Oxygen is the one that comes to mind, but it's not the only one. And that's what Lovelock actually taught us, that it's that combination that might not exist if the biosphere wasn't there, actually keeping that atmosphere in a a disequilibrium, that is, without a biosphere these combinations of different molecules wouldn't exist because they would react out with each other. So it has to be some, and I, I don't mean to call the biosphere an anomaly, but that, that's how the term was used. Something anomalous that was actually um, keeping these combinations of molecules in the atmosphere over time. We're observing them, and the biosphere is is a strong potential for that. That's what would be that hint. And you, you're exactly correct. It's the combination. Of particular elements within the atmosphere, not so much any one specific one. The seasonal variations is interesting because that's only within the last two years. I'm not an engineer, I don't design the instruments, but I talk to them, that I've actually gotten Mm -hmm. very optimistic that we might be able to do that, that we could actually get some signs of seasonal variations. It's going to be somewhat coarse initially, but that, that is something that I think realistically um, can happen in the future, and you're exactly right. That would really add quite a bit to, and you know, what we're looking to do is build up levels of confidence, and the first level would be, well, this could be explained by a biosphere. Now, what else do we need? And that's how it's going to progress, adding those levels progressively until we're you know, hopefully as confident as a scientist can be and you're a scientist um, and your listeners are, so you know what a scientist means when we're at, you know, 90% confidence. We could always potentially be wrong, but we want to actually build that up. This is also why there's value, I think, in looking more than one sample, because if we actually look at more samples, more planets, we can actually say statistical things as opposed to what's sometimes called parochial things, a specific instance. And what we have on this planet is a specific instance. All the things we've talked about that might influence the evolution of life on the Earth, well, they did influence the evolution of life on this planet. We don't know if those are universals, um, that life has to follow all of those. And the only way we can answer that, I think, is actually by being willing to look beyond the confines of what we're most familiar with.
0: No, and, and I love that idea, but I'm also at the same time, you know, when you, when you put on your scientist hat, uh, one of, one of the things I like to impress on people because I think it's one of the biggest misunderstandings of how science works. A lot of people think that what you do is, oh, I'm a scientist. I'm going to make my hypothesis and I'm going to go out and test it and try to prove. My hypothesis, and that's not actually what we do as scientists. I would argue that we spend much more of our time trying to poke holes in our hypothesis and trying to disprove our hypothesis and trying to demonstrate why it couldn't be right. And it's only when we try that in a huge variety of different ways and can't do it that we start to say maybe there's actually something to this. So the thing that I would worry about if you said, okay, we're gonna we're gonna look for can we see this set of signatures and this combination of signatures that could be explained by a biological presence on this world. My worry is, well, could they also be explained by a geological reaction or a chemical reaction or Something that might give you similar results to what the biological reaction does, but that has an entirely inorganic origin. And the big example that comes to my mind is right now we found seasonally varying methane outbursts on Mars. We've seen it in the atmosphere and we've seen it with the Curiosity rover in situ, right, right on site there, Um People get very excited because they're like, oh, maybe there's subsurface briny water and maybe it's seasonally activated when Mars gets warm and maybe those organisms be- were dormant and then they become active and then they emit methane and then we detect the methane and bam, there's life on Mars. And then other people are like, yeah, or maybe just stuff is happening under the surface and there's a chemical reaction and it's releasing methane. You know, a nice geochemical explanation, which is consistent with what we see here all the time on on earth as well how can we avoid fooling ourselves into thinking we found a biosignature when we've only found a geological or chemical etc signature
1: uh, excellent point uh, on many counts i'll come back to the hypothesis point and I'll, I'll take the last question first one of the things we're thinking about are what's um what's called false positives and that's exactly what you said that we actually find something that we think might be due to life, but it's a false positive signal because it actually could be due to geologic activity. Um, One of the things that many people like myself and students I work with are doing is trying to actually understand what the range of those false positives could be. Um, That's from observations on our own planet, observations within the solar system, and then a lot of it uh, does revolve around theory and modeling, um, doing hypotheticals within the laws of physics and chemistry and saying, okay, if a planet without life was behaving this way, that's not out of line with our understanding about the physics and the chemistry and the orbital characteristics, is it possible it could lead to particular signatures that we might mistake for life? And then we can go a step further further and we have to do this in, in a probability sense. And hopefully this is another um, aspect of what's sometimes misunderstood about science, particularly when you're exploring things. You don't think you're going to get the 100% right answer. You have to think about terms of likelihood. And from those types of exercise, we can ask ourselves, okay, what is the likelihood that this could be due to geologic activity and then going beyond that we might be able to say okay if it is due only to geologic activity here are certain conditions that must hold if that's the case for example if it's due to geologic activity that planet must have an internal energy source that is driving that geologic activity which might correlate to its age as planets age they they lose that internal energy source, and so our moon is referred to as a dead planet because it doesn't have the energy sources driving biology. If we could actually then get the age of the planet, which is going to come from the age of the star and the age of the solar system, we then might be able to say, okay, this is potentially a false positive, but the probability of that is very low. Now, if we're only dealing with one planet, um, it's very hard to do probability and statistics with small numbers, as you know, which again, and maybe I'm sounding a bit like a broken record, is the value of having multiple observations from multiple planets. So that's one way it, it's being dealt with. There is always that possibility, right, that it will be a false positive, but we're trying to constrain what the likelihood of that is. From the hypothesis aspect, I, I, I'm so glad You said that. My own thinking, when I finally realized what science was, and it's actually, it took me a while to get there, because I think I had learned this quote-unquote the scientific method, which I actually hate, because it implies there's one way to do it, which is the hypothesis deducted. That's not how I saw real scientists working, particularly when I went into Earth science, where the idea of multiple working hypotheses, you entertain Every possible idea that you think could work. And then you're exactly right. You look for the evidence to start knocking down some of those ideas, not to favor one idea. Um, That's called falling in love with a pet hypothesis, which I tell students is the most dangerous thing you can do. That's not what you want to do. You actually want, at some level, all your ideas to be testable so you can start knocking some of them down. And you're exactly right. That's, That's how we do it. That's how science is done. And my thinking as we move into exoplanet science and the detection for life on other planets, it's in our best interest to maintain that, to maintain the multiple working hypothesis, and as you say, to maintain a level of skepticism. How convinced am I? Is this possible with something else? And I think that's healthy. And I don't think it's overly scientific. I think it's... um, I think it's just – it's human, right? If we've got a big question we want to know the answer to, I think we'd all want to be as confident as we can be about it. And maybe that sounds overly cautious, but I I don't think it is.
0: I don't think it is either. I think I agree with you completely. I think when you – if you're looking at a big question, you don't want to give a premature answer that later gets overturned. You know, I I always say what's the solution to bad science or bad data and the answer is more data. It's more and better data. So if you looked at a world and you found like, "Oh, we have this level of methane and this level of carbon dioxide and this level of water vapor in the atmosphere and we see this change over an orbital period," Uh what what's going on here? Yes, you you want to get as much of that data as possible, but like you also alluded to, there are Other things you want to get, too, because you want to know. You want to know what are the properties of the star, and what are the ratio of the elements of this star, and what are the other molecules that are present in that planet's atmosphere, and what are all of the other similar planets we can survey and take good measurements of. And for that planet, can we do direct imaging? Can we see what color it is? Can we see if there were day-night variations or winter, spring, summer, fall variations? In it, are there continents? Do they green or brown with the seasons? Do they, right? There's not just we're looking at one type of evidence in one system and drawing the conclusion from that. You want as much of the data as possible so that, like you said, if you have well, we can explain it through A, B, C, or D. That we can knock down B and we can knock down D and. Boy, when we look at what's happening over there, A seems to be the explanation about 2% of the time, and C seems to be the explanation 98% of the time. Even if we can't know in particular that this one system is Goldilocks, this is not too hot, not too cold, not too big, not too small, that this is it, this is the one with life, that's always really challenging to say. That's your... That's your, you know, oh, we've really hit the lottery here. We really know the answer here. Um, It seems like what we do is we go in terms of likelihoods that we say, well, this is when we can definitively state we reached this particular level of confidence in claiming this planet or this class of planets appears to have evidence for life beyond Earth.
1: Well said, and, and it's going to have to be confidence, and that's why I say more is better. More data is better within, you know, the limits of economic limits, and we do consider that, and I'd go even further than to say different is more. Um, the more different types of conditions we can explore where life might thrive, I think comes with more information, which is why I don't think I'm... The only contrarian but I, i'm not the biggest fan of narratives presented to the public that we're searching for an earth 2.0 a planet exactly like our own with life because i know a lot about that planet i don't know everything about it but it's right here and there it is um to me the information content there beyond we found life somewhere else and again that's a big big find granted but the information content there is, is not as high as if we actually start to find signatures for the potential of life on planets that are not exactly like our own, that don't orbit a star exactly like our own, that are at different ages than our own. To me, that's, that's kind of the double whammy. More data and actually a wider range, um, a different type of data will help us put tighter confidence bounds on any conclusion we might draw.
0: So maybe instead of Earth 2.0, we should also consider that maybe Mercury Plus or Mars plus plus might be might be an even better place to look for life, but we won't know unless we decide those are observations worth making.
1: Agreed, agreed. And when I started in on The planetary science side of it, I I split my time between the Earth. My advisor was very interested in the Magellan mission. Venus is a great lesson, uh, I think, actually. There was a Life Magazine article, I think in 1966, that said there's promise of life on Venus. Because we actually hadn't even gone to the planet, so we didn't know. And once we went, we knew that, well, no, that's, that's not the case. The planet surprised us. It's 450 degrees hotter on the surface than it is on the Earth. And that's not due to proximity to the star. That's due to uh, a, a thick CO2 atmosphere, which creates a large greenhouse effect. And then we swung the other way, where we thought, oh, life could never exist on Venus. But now, recently, there's been two groups that have actually used climate models, GCM models, studying uh, the potential climate of Venus two billion years ago when, as you know, the luminosity of our star was different than it is now. And both groups found that actually the conditions then might have allowed for Venus to actually have a liquid ocean, to have the ingredients that might allow for life. And watching that bounce around three different ways, to me, has been very informative that we really... Do want to be careful and keep our options open. So Mercury 1.1, it could be, why not a Venus 1.0 that actually didn't go into a runaway greenhouse? Or, you know, once we start talking about these outer edges of the solar system, where there might be water, where there are organics, we you know, this 100% for sure, where hopefully this mission will come back. Um, I think it got actually delayed for a bit where we're thinking about drilling through the ice shell of Europa to go into the liquid ocean to see if there are signatures of organics, whereas people were thinking about flying spacecraft through the geysers on some of the other moons you mentioned, Enceladus, to actually look for signatures of organic chemistry. All those things I think are great. And an Earth 2.0 narrative, I think Unfortunately, tends to rule those out, and it becomes a um, laid on the line, um, a bit unimaginative.
0: So, one of the things it sounds like you're saying is the efforts we're making to broaden our horizons, to look for life in places that aren't like us, missions that look underneath the surface of Mars, beneath the ice sheets of Europa, into the geysers of Enceladus, or, uh, which you didn't mention, but one of the f- ones that I'm very excited about, is there are missions to look for life in the cl- above the cloud tops of <laughs> Venus. Because about 60 kilometers up, you have Earth-like temperatures, Earth-like atmospheres, you're above the sulfuric acid haze, and if you have temperatures and an energy gradient, and days and nights because you have those rapid winds that blow you around the planet, uh, maybe you could have life there too. This applies not just to our solar system, but also to other solar systems. Look, look in all the different places you're capable of looking. Adrian, if I can ask you for one final thought to leave our listeners with, what would you like them to think about the most?
1: What would I like them to think about the most? That's a good question. I wish I had prepared more for it. I, I will come back to what I, I said to begin with in um, an answer to a question a little bit back. Different to me is more. Actually thinking about the differences in planetary systems has been more interesting to me from information than just thinking about an earthocentric view. Extending that out, To thinking about life, I think, actually, will be not only rewarding, exciting, but also I think, and maybe we'll tie it all the way back to philosophy, I think philosophically that is more in line with what the word exploration means to me. Exploration is not setting out to find what I call home or to find a duplicate of it. Exploration is actually being open to different possibilities with the hope of finding something that looks, and let's use the word, truly alien to us. And as humans, we're not good with the truly alien stuff that is very different than us. You mentioned X-Files. I could mention other um, sci-fi shows that I quite like, by the way, Star Trek and all those. But you look at the aliens, they're not that alien. Um, They're actually um, pretty Earth-centered. To me, expanding out and thinking about those true differences, that could really be the frontier, not just from the scientific standpoint, but from the way we view ourselves within the galaxy. And, you know, you mentioned life in the clouds. I mean, that, that's, that used to be sci-fi reading, like Kurt Vonnegut stuff. But yet, from the hypothesis standpoint, there's nothing we know of within the laws of physics and chemistry that rule that out. And if there's nothing we know that can rule that out from a theoretical grounds, then we should look for it. If we don't find it from an observational ground, so be it. Um, I 100% agree with you. I don't want to necessarily believe I want to know. And if the answer is something I didn't think it would be, and the evidence is pointing to that, I will accept it. But for now, I would say, really, we want to actually think more about differences And finding them than about similarities to really think about truly alien worlds.
0: And how do you like that, everyone? More than 500 years after Copernicus, here we are still biased by our own implicit geocentrism. Don't fall for it. Make sure you look at all the different possibilities for what's out there, or you might miss one of the most important places or classes of places where life arises all because of the biased way we've been looking. Adrian Lenardic, thank you for joining us today. For those of you uh, joining us and listening to this, I wanted to thank all of my Patreon supporters for making this podcast possible. In particular, I'd like to thank everyone who donates to us over at Starts With a Bang at the $5 level a month and above. So thanks go to... Robert Hansen, Samir Kumar, Aaron Weiss, Paulina Barron, Stefan Berniger, John Van Balaguyan, Dominic Turpin, Tim Graham, John Methot, Pavel Zuzelski, Thomas Sola, Denier, Frank, Eric Brown, Pedro Texera, Igor Mitrofanov, Joseph Dvorak, Jeffrey David Maraccini, Juan Jose Gomez Garcia, Punitive Expedition, Patrick Dennis, Jens Kroger, Laird WH, Daniel Nadasi, Mark Armstrong, Jose Enrique, Sean Foley, Flo, Richard Jousey, DGE, John Kozura, Marcelo Barnaba, Rafael Wojcic, Danny, Alexander Marius, Andrew T. Douglas, Chris Hilly, Jason McCampbell, Weller Tractor Salvage, Adrian Griffiths, William Blair, Jason Luttrell, Charles Buchanan, Brainwise, Ken Blackman, Frederick Martello, Pierre Franson, Dick Pills, Hannah Kahn, Andrew Jason, Mark Langston, David Krompotic, Randall Slemak, Jerry Wilterding, Tom Van Scotter, Michael Lewis, Mike, Ahmed Lee Khamisi, Dana Bridges, Kelly Kudrick, Richard Schwartz, Darren Redfern, Mark Bloor, Fraser Kane Steve Schaber, Naked Bunny with a Whip, Kevin Barnes, Radek Nesbida, James Nance, Sydney. Atwood, Nathan Hanna, Tomas All, Glenn McDavid, Benjamin Turner, David Taschioni, Philip Radilevic, and Braxton Thomason. Thanks everyone for tuning in, and we'll see you here next time for more Starts With a Bang.